Thanks for listening to the Jazz Drew Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we continue our coverage on the Metro Vancouver board wanting to accelerate the move away from natural gas. We look at why some city councillors question Fortis BC data. And is it time BC school districts consider four-day school weeks? And is the Vancouver School Board getting ready to unload the Kingsgate Mall property for a whopping $250 million? That's all next on the Jazz Drew Hall Show podcast. Today that the Vancouver School Board wants to take control of the property that is home to the Kingsgate Mall. Now, the district has owned the property uh, for decades, and there's been no school there since the 1970s. The property is presently leased by the Beattie Group and is valued at $250 million. Now, the district has been in a legal dispute with Beattie, arguing it's owed back rent equaling $52 million. Uh, in court, the VSB said that with the potential termination of the lease, it's considering a, a sale or redevelopment options. The Globe and Mail's Frances Bula wrote the story in today's Globe and Mail. Uh, take a listen to her as she spoke to our Jill Bennett earlier today. The school board owns it, but since 1972, they've leased it out long term. And another company called Royal Oak had it for a long time. And then BD Development took over the lease in 2005 from Royal Oak. And they've been running the mall since then, paying what they thought was the agreed on terms, which is eight and a quarter percent of whatever the value of the property is as it is now, not with rezoning, not with what it might be in the future, but what could be done immediately. And uh, that's kind of what's in dispute. But what I found strange about it was that the VSB, it was settled in 1999, how to interpret that contract, and now they've reopened it. So clearly there's some interest on their part in doing something there. That's the Global Mail's Francis Pila speaking to our Jill Bennett uh, earlier today. Well, should the mall property be saved for a potential school or is the potential for a financial windfall too high not to sell it? Joining me now to discuss the issue is Vic Kanna, chair of the Vancouver District Parents Advisory Council. Vic, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Jazz. Uh, great to be here. Quick correction, uh, past chair. Past chair, all right. So you yeah. are very much connected uh, to, of course, the school district. I know you're very passionate about the education system here uh, in, in Vancouver. Your reaction, first of all, to what's transpiring in, in court and what this could potentially lead to? Yeah, definitely. So um, Kingsgate Mall is anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the VSB has... And they've been working on, for three years already, a, a secret. Now, that word secret can get people's backs up. Mm-hmm. And I say it's secret because in February 2021, the VSB trustees passed a motion saying that the VSB land asset strategy should be made public. Mm-hmm. So February 2021... That motion was passed, and the public still does not know about the VSB land asset strategy. So Kingsgate Mall is in there, and this was land asset strategy. It was probably started about five years ago. So if you want to get some kind of time frame of when this clicks in, it ties in with the strategy. Mm-hmm. And in that strategy, there's already things that are being executed out there today. So today, right now, like, Today, immediately, like right now, if you drive by night and 49, you'll see a sign there. And the sign there is for a partial land sale or long-term lease of the land at Fleming Elementary. 
and then the VSB is considering to declare another soccer field surplus, and that's at Bruce Elementary, and that engagement will come out in September. Also in September, near Kingsway and Joyce, there's a school there called Carleton, mm-hmm. and it's a very, very big site, um, and it is considered um, for closure in September. Now, what's going on here is parents also know that at Bruce and at Carleton, the VSB has submitted subdivision plans to the city. So if that field is declared surplus, then there's a subdivision plan with the city. If Carleton's closed, then there's a subdivision plan with the city. Mm -hmm. So Kingsgate Mall just ties in perfectly with this thinking that the VSB has which is based on their belief that there's going to be way less, way fewer, my proper grammar, um, way fewer children in Vancouver in the future. So there's an incredible forecast confusion out there. Um, Last year, the VSB had record growth. They grew by 2.5%. This year, parents are expecting another record growth like another at least a thousand kids into the VSB in addition to what they had last year. So that's another 2% growth. So and let me just stop you right there. Where do you think this is coming from? Because yeah, look, they're not building more single family homes in Vancouver. And I get that. And that's, that, that's, that's of the past, but they are building townhomes. They're building condos. And we often talk about the missing middle and people will still live in Vancouver. Kids will still live in Vancouver. It may be different from the 1980s, uh, but yeah. we all talk about the missing middle. I mean, do they fundamentally yeah. believe that we're going to actually have less kids in Vancouver with, with the population growing the way it's growing in, in Metro Vancouver? You know, Jazz, this is where I've been questioning the VSB operations for about, you know, three years. Mm-hmm. And I've been really vocal about it. And and now I think it's gaining traction where it's, there's nearly, I don't know what the number is, but it's well over 100. Some people say it's approaching 200, but there's lots of cranes in town. Mm-hmm. And then people look at this missing middle, middle part and they say, okay, we're, who can afford Vancouver? People say that all the time. But people do live in very, very wealthy cities around the world, and people still go to school. So when it comes to education, regardless of whether you're a YIMBY, a NIMBY, whether you're for affordable housing, whether you're not, what you need to be advocating for is one thing that's really simple, and that is an alignment Let's align our housing policy with our school space planning. Mm -hmm. In this town, we have 300 yearly kindergarten lotteries. We have full schools ranging from UBC all the way down to Kitts, down to Fairview, to Falls Creek, to Olympic Village, right into Mount Pleasant now, right where Kingsgate Mall is. Mm -hmm. And it's expanding. It's expanding into the Broadway corridor, it's planning into the Canby corridor. None of these plans that I just mentioned have any school policy with them. So where is our city on this? 
or city needs to step up as well. Could that property, I mean, do you see a school on that property? Uh, because once they look, it's, it's high density. Why not sell that property? Perhaps you can acquire land somewhere else in the city and put a school there by using those funds. Do you see a school there? Or, or and by, by that, I mean probably a school in a high rise or something of that sort. The potential is there. Absolutely. I see two schools there. I see two public schools at Kingsgate Mall. And I see housing at Kingsgate Mall. And let's talk about VSB's interests. Let's talk about the VSB as if the VSB were a human being, a person, an entity. So if we are trustees of the VSB and we're only worried about the VSB interests, then we only want to redevelop Kingsgate Mall when we want to put an education complex there. Mm-hmm. So then that's the moment that you want to redevelop Kingsgate Mall. Until then, leave it alone. Leave it alone and work out a reasonable rent agreement with BD is what you had back in 1999 mm-hmm. and keep that going. You don't need to extract maximum value until you're ready to build your education complex. My final question, uh, in- to, my final question to you is, have they given you any indication, any research, any reports that that fundamentally justify their thinking in your mind that they do wish to unload what they believe is excess land. I'm just, I'm trying to understand where their thinking is coming from. Has there been any report, anything that they can point to and say, this is why we believe we can get rid of some of these school properties or portions of these properties or all these properties, because we just do not see an increase in the uh, kids age population in Vancouver moving forward. No. There's no demographic uh, reports that they can give you that will state that. Uh, They don't even uh, uh, disclose their assumptions that they use in their forecasting methodologies. So an expert like Andy Mm Ann would never, ever take their data for any grain of worth um, because you need to know the assumptions. You need to know what what are you building your forecast on, what's your models based on. Mm -hmm. All of that is never answered by the VSB. However... Here's what the VSB, now let's play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Why would the VSB be thinking about this? So one, we've heard the chair mention many, many times that the VSB is in what they call a structural deficit. So we analyzed this, parents, and we basically asked the ministry, we said, what does this mean, structural deficit? They said, well, that's when the VSB doesn't have enough funding to run their operations. Mm-hmm. So in the last seven out of 10 years, the ministry has provided the VSB with more funding than what the VSB asked for. So that's not true. There is no structural deficit. And the VSB is walking into next month with millions in surplus in operating budget. But there is a need to get money for capital projects. Mm-hmm. There are 34 elementary schools that are seismically unsafe in Vancouver. There are 11 secondary schools that are seismically unsafe. There are 22 of them with no plans to ever be made safe. And many of those schools are on the land asset strategy for disposal. So it's kind of like, hey, we can close some schools and then we can get the money to make other schools safe. Will this work out? Hell no, it would not work at all because the city is growing. So the VSB needs to have a complete rethink. The city and or the province need to do an intervention. 
Mm-hmm. If the ministry is predicting 5,000 to 10,000 more children to be here, and the VSP is predicting 5,000 fewer kids to be here, and the VSP is predicting 2,000 fewer kids to be here in the next two years, let me tell you, the VSP has got it wrong. Yeah. Vic, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chad, for having me. Uh, just uh, about a week ago, week and a half ago, uh, the Minister of Jobs was um, on the show. We were talking about this new grant uh, that the BC government um, was providing in regards to $2,000 for small businesses to cover the repair costs of property crimes, such as broken windows and graffiti, and up to $1,000 for vandalism prevention measures, uh, such as security systems. Uh, good news overall, but it certainly didn't help our next guest, who's, who, along with his staff, have had to deal with vandalism for a lot longer. Uh, John Neat is the CEO and founder of JJ Bean Coffee Roasters. John, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first of all, just in regards to the this announcement by uh, the government recently, uh, is it going to be enough in your mind? Well, no, not really. I mean, firstly, um, security, we have security in all our stores, and mm-hmm. it does, does not help. They they can't respond by the time things have happened. So a window breaks, then, you know, the alarm company calls us. It takes them quite a bit of time to get a hold of somebody because, generally speaking, they're waking somebody up at 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't always respond right away at 3 in the morning. We're sound asleep. Mm-hmm. So quite often, and then um, sometimes a window's not really broken. It's just someone banged against the door. So it's very rare that we will go and respond, but it doesn't really matter because it's too late. The window's been broken. Mm-hmm. And very rarely do they steal anything. They look for money in the cash register, realize there's nothing, and then they steal some sandwiches or break a bake case or do something just that's not very helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, you shuttered your J.J. Bean outlet in Gastown on July 31st because of that persistent vandalism at the cafe there. Um, how difficult of a decision was it for you? I mean, did, did this take months for you to get to this point, or was it just a question of, look, this has just happened, we're, we're shutting this down? It took months because <clears throat> the landlord didn't want to let me out of my lease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since COVID, we have been wanting to close that store down. Um, it's been very hard to staff. Our staff are not happy there. They are dealing with stuff that they should not have to deal with as baristas. And, you know, they're afraid. They, they live in fear of what's going to happen with these individuals that, that come in and um, are just crazy on drugs. Mm-hmm. What would you okay. like to see, what, what would you like to see done here in regards to um, you know we we obviously want to be tolerant, but I think there's a bigger conversation about law and order, and not just here in Vancouver, but throughout uh, British Columbia on this issue. You have a business to run. You have require you you know you got to meet the meet the needs of your customers and your 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 um, employees. What kind of things would you like to see the government do, either locally or provincially, so we can at least help small business owners like yourself who don't have to do this. First of all, your comment about we have to be tolerant, I don't think we do. Hmm. I think we've lulled ourselves as a population into being tolerant, and tolerance is what is allowing lawlessness to occur. So I don't think, I think we need to change our mind and not be tolerant. 
we need to say we're not putting up with this anymore. This is not fair. You know, I run a business, pay my property taxes, mm-hmm. pay a ton of taxes, pay huge amounts of money of taxes to the government on behalf of my staff and personally. And I don't have to be tolerant. The government needs to, I, I understand, uh, like I think, number one, if somebody is on drugs and commits a crime, that they should be forced to go to rehab. They shouldn't be given more drugs to go out on the street. And, but even if saying that, it's easy enough for me to say it, but as I understand it, there's not enough rehab beds in, in uh, B.C. for anybody that even wants rehab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think two things, though. People that want rehab should get it. But number two, people that commit crimes that are on drugs should be forced to go to rehab. They should lose their decision-making ability to be on drugs, which I don't understand why we allow people to do things that hurt themselves. You know, we complain about all the overdose deaths, mm-hmm. and yet we seem to allow it. Yeah. And that We shouldn't tolerate that either. We shouldn't tolerate overdose deaths for these people. We shouldn't let them kill themselves. They're killing themselves because they want a fentanyl high that is much, that much better than they can get on the regular drugs. And we need to care about these people and say, hey, you can't be on drugs anymore. Yeah, uh, That's what caring is in my mind. Do you think the tide's turning? Uh, the reason I say this, I mean, I've had a lot of counselors on from throughout BC talking about, first of all, having bringing in bylaws to make sure there's no public uh, use of drugs around parks and those types of things. But overall, do you think the, the mindset is changing now well, there is a pushback on government saying, wait a minute, we've gone too far. We've got to be, there has to be a law and order uh, issue here. There has to be, you know, at least consequences and accountability built into the system. I think so. I mean, everybody I'm talking to, I mean, I'm getting, I've got a lot of press over this issue. And, uh, you know, I was kind of counseled, counseled to not say my mind, mm-hmm. but I have been saying my mind. And it's unbelievable the response that I've seen on uh, the Daily Hive, for example, had something like 950 comments, and they were all all in support of saying, finally, someone speaks out. Yeah. And so I, I think the tide is turning in the public tolerance of this issue. Whether or not the tide has turned in terms of government doing something about it, mm-hmm. are there more beds for rehab? Are they going to take the tough stand and say criminals that are on drugs have to go to rehab? It's not a choice anymore. Have to go to rehab. That's part of the condition of their, like, not being released. They get released and and it seems to be that, uh, oh, they were on drugs. It's an episode. Um, So they didn't really, they, they can't be held culpable for something that they didn't know they were doing. No, I think you raise a very good good, good point, John. I think it, one of the things that also is helping in this conversation is what people are seeing, not just in Vancouver, but if you go down the I-5, especially in cities like San Francisco, I mean, they've just given up the downtown core. The impact the, that uh, the, the homelessness issue, the drug issue has had on that city in regards to its bigger brand is, is significant. And it's a safety it is. issue. A lot of stores have left, and name brand stores are leaving that area. Uh, and I think they realize, and hopefully they can turn that city around as well. It is a great 
city and you don't want Vancouver heading in that direction or many other communities around BC uh, heading in that direction uh, as well. John, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's look at um, a recent vote uh, at the Metro Vancouver Board. The vote occurred on July 28th. Um, the Metro Vancouver Board voted 84 to 50 in support of accelerating a faster move away from fossil fuels. Now, the original recommendations were advocated by the City of Richmond. The vote included uh, asking the B.C. government to enact legislation to speed up the transition away from natural gas. Uh, that's province-wide. Fortis, B.C. asked Metro Vancouver to reject recommendations for a quicker move away from fossil fuels. The move was also not supported by various business associations who also wrote in uh, to the board. Now, today in Glacier Media, there's a report that the City of Richmond and other councillors around BC are concerned a Fortis BC report redacted vital information in regards to the future role uh, of renewable natural gas. Now, critics allege the report titled Renewable and Low Carbon Gas Potential Study had vital information taken out which said switching to electric over gas is easier and more efficient. Fortis BC is quoted as saying the information did not fit the scope of the study, so hence it was removed. Now, in the article, Nanaimo City Councilor uh, Glenn uh, Geselbrocht uh, describes the deletion in the report as misleading. Uh, ben uh, Geselbrocht joins us now. Ben, thank you for speaking to us today. Good to be here, Josh. Thank you. Uh, this vote... Uh, that occurred recently at the Metro Vancouver Board, uh, a desire to move away from natural gas. Uh, It was a motion uh, pushed by the city of Richmond. Uh, There has been a lot of conversation, and I've had Mayor Malcolm Brody on, uh, talking about what Fortis is talking about, uh, the natural gas, uh, and its importance in regards to the energy transition. Walk me through why you do not buy this conversation in and around uh, their renewable natural gas. Um, great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're having a similar conversation. I'm a, a council member on the city in Nanaimo and, um, we're looking at um, how we can take responsibility for reducing our, uh, our greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, over the last 20 years, we've set goals and we've overshot them continuously, um, for the reason that folks are switching, um, to uh, natural gas. And, you know, we've been just been seeing a lot of, uh, advertising around how natural gas, all this renewable natural gas. I mean, everywhere you look, there's there's big placards up saying renewable natural gas. And when we were looking at um, you know mandating uh, more uh, low carbon energy systems at, in our uh, city in Nanaimo, uh, we had uh, climate modeler and consultants come in and look, and basically everyone said that you need to you know, switch technologies to heat pumps and that to, to reduce your emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fortis representatives uh, showed up and they were um, you know, quoting, uh, you know, in opposition to this uh, and quoting this uh, study that was done in early 22 about looking at the future uh, supply of renewable natural gas in BC. And, you know, they're talking about 100% renewable natural gas and just, all these words, you know, leaves, you know, uh, you know, a municipal politician like myself head spinning, but people reached out to us saying like, yeah, it's not, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, having a hundred percent renewable natural gas. Uh, the best, even at full build out in 2050 is, is 5% um, renewable. Uh, and, 
released in, in this report that was used to really justify a lot of these claims. You know, I, the city of Richmond, it came out, I, I saw this report about all these redacted statements and just uh, somewhat infuriating for me in the sense that, you know, we're trying to make decisions based on, you know, unbiased expert opinion. And there were things in there that were saying, you know, how heat pumps and that are, you know, six to eight times more efficient and that the goal of emissions reduction um, could be met way easier than having to with all this renewable natural gas by just switching technologies and that the recommendation of that would be that much more, you know, direct path. And um, so it's just, I, I just feel a lot of trust eroded in, in what, uh, you know, the information that force is putting out there and, and how they're, you know, rather aggressively coming to local councils as we're making this thing, touting uh, studies that, you know, have had information removed from them and really conflating terms, you know, saying something the renewable natural gas when the actual fact is it's only going to make up 5% best case scenario of this whole other suite of, you know, what they're saying, calling low, uh, low carbon gas, um, which is really, you know, coming from traditional ways of fracking, but using hydrogen and the technology is not even fully dialed in yet for feasibility so it's just you know at the end of the day kind of just left with this feeling it's just sort of trying to delay the process to you know keep allowing natural gas hookups which aren't allowing us to reach our uh, emissions reduction goal and ultimately it doesn't even look like it's going to be a, a cheaper option for for people in the long run anyhow so uh, so, so Ben just to con- that. Just to confirm here, though, uh, unlike fossil uh, fossil fuel gas or traditional gas, perhaps is the best way to describe it, uh, renewable natural gas is, uh, is comes from methane, which is captured from uh, landfills and and uh, wood waste and and, and uh, w- wastewater treatment plants. So I just want to confirm this: when they would be piping this renewable gas, it would be piped in with the conventional gas. Yeah, well, I mean that's. It's very complex, but when you get into like the details of it, so so first, uh, say for example, just with residential heating, so the whole province uses about 230 petajoules of of energy from natural gas. Of that 230, about 48 petajoules is for residential heating. Now, of that 48 petajoules, the report said even by 2050, only 10 petajoules, which is under 5%, would come from, um, you know, capturing from landfill, uh, capturing it from wastewater treatment plants. So only 10 petajoules, even at the, the maximal buildup of the renewable natural gas system. And so what it does then, when they do capture it, it goes into this larger system and it's depl- displacement. So you could sign up for renewable natural gas. It's not necessarily saying that that's what you're burning it. It's just saying that in this larger system, you know, there is an input into it. Um, but none of these distinctions are made when presentations are being made to council, and it's just saying 100% renewable natural gas by 2050. And it's just, you know, ultimately it is, it is you know, one of the worst forms of greenwashing. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, and, and, and for example, at our landfill, we're working to remove, you know, the uh, 100% of our organics by 2030, and organic material are one of the main producers of natural gas. And so 
if we're taking that out of our landfill, the amount of natural gas that you're going to be able to capture from our landfill is just going to continually decrease smaller and smaller and smaller. And a lot of other regional districts and municipalities are going that direction as well. So it's just like the actual source of them is going to decrease as well. And so it's just, yeah, I find it infuriating. So when when Fortis says that, look, we took some information out because it didn't fit the scope of 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 uh, this particular report, it didn't fit into what we were actually looking at. You don't buy any of that. Well, I mean, you know, in a report that Fortis, you know, worked with the province of, of British Columbia to commission and is touting as an independent report, which they're going to rely on to market natural gas, and it says in it that you know, um, uh, you know source heat pumps used in the climate of southern coastal BC where most of the population is located can achieve a coefficient of performance um, that is six to eight times more efficient than heating with gas or that, you know, the, the targets that are, are, are set to reduce emissions through the use of renewable gas, it doesn't report that could be easily met by just switching technologies. Um, yeah, they pro- I, I could imagine they'd want that out of the report because it doesn't really paint a, an effective picture for uh, natural gas uh, to, to achieve what it's saying to achieve around uh, emission reduction. So, um, yeah, call it out of scope or what you want, but uh, I'm sure that there's, there's a very strong reason why they know, folks didn't want it in there. So do you think Fortis BC, collectively as a corporation, is lying? I think that there is an omission of key information that is, you know, for a municipal councillor trying to make a decision and the sort of sea of facts that are floating out there and, and really rely on expert opinion mm-hmm. and actively removing something from a report that is, you know, that, you know, folks from Fortis came to our council touting this report as an independent report on, you know, the prospects of utilizing renewable natural gas and then having information redacted from it after the actual final report was released. I mean, you can call it what you will, but uh, that's a serious omission. Uh, do you think we're headed in the right direction uh, with this vote uh, in, in Metro Vancouver and the, and, and, uh, the conversation that's occurring now in your, on Vancouver Island? Uh, do you think we're heading in the right direction? Do you think we will eventually see a, a greater momentum to eliminating natural gas and new homes being built? Uh, absolutely. Like, one, the technology is now there where it's more efficient. Um, you know, there's an abundance of, of hydroelectric and, and, you know, renewable electricity generation that's coming online. And it, you know, the... The resiliency of our power grid uh, is bar none in the world. Um, and I think that, you know, if we really want to take responsibility for our fair share of emission reduction, the, 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 the writing's on the wall that natural gas is not going to get us there. And in, in a world where we're seeing, like, very frightening changes to climate with the forest fires, the heat domes, the flooding, um, I think, you know, I think it's it's high time that a you know a, a rich country and and a, and a rich province like ourselves just takes our fair share of responsibility and you know all the all the municipal consultants are you know working on this 
are saying that fuel switching is the only way to go. Mm-hmm. And it's not saying that natural gas, you know, has its place in specific applications and in specific climates, but in southern, you know, British Columbia, where it's all, uh, you know, um, low, low temperature heating, um, you know, that's, it, it, it really is a no brainer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in regards to this conversation, uh, I've talked about Fortis BC. Do you think the BC Utilities Commission uh, is, in your mind, uh, is uh, a step away from all this and can still uh, make decisions you believe for the what's best uh, for the province of British Columbia and its people? You know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I have to have faith in, in, in government and that the folks that are, you know, placed in the responsibility of doing what's best, uh, you know, w- with their roles are, are making those decisions and just making fact-based decisions. Um, you know, it is a little bit worrisome than an independent report, which the province was, you know, on the, the directing board, um, the steering committee for it, did uh, retract and, 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 um, and, and remove information from a final report. That is worrisome, but I do have faith in the Utilities Commission, um, you know, to, to, to do what's necessary and what's right. Mm-hmm. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Let's talk short-term rentals. Uh, I know many of you out there have used Airbnb or similar technology uh, whenever you stay uh, in different cities around Canada, around the world. Uh, They are convenient and certainly sites like that have proliferated and they're very popular. Uh, Now, one of the concerns people have raised about Airbnb and many others is that they are taking away housing uh, that is desperately needed in communities like Metro Vancouver or throughout uh, British Columbia. Uh, it is an ongoing issue in Vancouver. Uh, there's been pushback in, in many cities, especially in Europe as well during tourist season, that so much vital housing is lost to these short-term rentals. Well, a gentleman who's been following this issue, um, who has a Twitter handle named at Mortimer underscore underscore one, at Mortimer underscore one, put out a tweet today to give you an, an understanding of how how much of a challenge Airbnb has become to the city of Vancouver. Now, right now in the city, there is there are 2,964 short-term rental licenses. So just under 3,000 short-term rental licenses have been issued in this city. As of August 3rd, there are 4,929 short-term rentals that are available. So almost 2,000 more than what's been licensed. And just imagine if those 2,000 were part of the rental pool here in Vancouver. There have been many people who have said that the by this by allowing this to happen, uh, we it's a ripple effect. It does cause a ripple effect, and it's a factor, one factor, in rising long-term rental costs. Uh, and I'll put that in context for you. Uh, 2,964 business licenses were issued in 2023. In 2022, it's 2,557, so an increase of just over 400 or so. Uh, this year, um, so there's 2,227 licenses flagged for investigation and audits, 97 originally were flagged in 2023. So it's an ongoing issue. It's actually getting worse here 
uh, in the city of Vancouver. Now, the provincial government uh, has said that they will introduce legislation during the fall of this year to deal with the issue of Airbnb. Quebec has brought in legislation earlier this year after there was a fire in an apartment block and people uh, ended up dying, and they have brought in tougher legislation, which to a certain degree keeps Airbnb uh, a lot more responsible uh, for the people who are actually renting. So it uh, has built in some accountability to these uh, firms that do rent out these homes. Uh, joining me now is Ravi Kailan, BC's Housing Minister, to talk a little bit about the staggering number of short-term rentals and what he hopes to do when he does introduce that legislation uh, in Victoria during the fall session. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz, thanks so much for having me. So let's jump in here. Uh, a tweet today by a gentleman named Mortimer who is known to follow uh, the short-term rental situation in uh, in the city of Vancouver. Uh, his tweet basically says that there are 2,964 short-term rental licenses issued uh, in the city, so just under 3,000. Uh, but we have, as of August 4th, uh, sorry, August 3rd of this year, 4,929 actual short-term rentals. Uh, your reaction to that? Well, it's not surprising, Jazz, uh, given that uh, in the last two years, we've been hearing concerns from local governments uh, on two major issues. One, uh, the lack of data. Um, uh, you know, don't have access to the data about who actually is going on these sites. Uh, you know, who, in this case in Vancouver, who's got a permit, who doesn't. Uh, you know, who is using the same business license from multiple listings. Uh, that kind of data is a real issue that local governments identified for us. And then the second one is uh, enforcement. Uh, and many local governments say there's really no tools for them to be able to enforce any of the rules that they've put in place. And the Vancouver example you shared is, is just a clear one. And we've been hearing that from communities around the province. So what we did just was we um, went to UBCM and said, okay, you, your, your leaders, local leaders have identified uh, issues. Uh, here's some dollars. Come back to us with all the challenges that you've identified, and then we'll take steps to put some solutions in place. And that report by UBCM was delivered to us earlier this year. And so moving forward, when can we see uh, provincial legislation introduced? Well, this fall, we've committed uh, to have legis- legislation in place. And what uh, our goal around this is uh, to address the challenges local governments have highlighted around data around uh, the ability to be able to enforce, uh, you know, having a little bit more accountability on these uh, platforms uh, to play a, a bigger role. That We have way too many units or too many houses on the market uh, that are not available to people to rent because more and more are shifting towards short-term rentals. For example, the city of Victoria had a report that showed just between last year and this year, they saw, I believe it was 28% increase in the registered short-term rentals. Now, uh, you highlighted that many of them don't even register. Now, tourism-dependent communities who are saying, hey, it was great, but now we're for our workers to live. And so we need solutions. So we're working with them. Uh, this fall is when I've committed that we'll have legislation in place. Uh, are you looking at the on uh, the Quebec legislation uh, where there was uh, people who died at a fire there? Uh, and as you said, you, you know, the, the push was to make sure, uh, you know, companies like Airbnb are also doing greater vetting, greater accountability from these companies. 
can you actually uh, extract that accountability from them? Because they're not based here. They're not based in Canada beyond a, a you know a handful of employees. They're American-based. Can you extract accountability from those groups, uh, from those uh, companies? Because generally they just view themselves as, uh, you know, facilitating uh, a, a relationship between the person offering the service and the purchase person who wants the service, uh, and that's all they're there for. They're not really folks who want to be held accountable or companies who want to be held accountable, you think you can extract that accountability from them? Well, your question is excellent, and it just lays out uh, the complexity and the challenge that local governments are dealing with right now, uh, which is, uh, in many cases, they're uh, at the whim of these companies. Uh, There's not many tools available for local governments to address it. So we will be uh, taking steps to uh, ensure that that accountability is in place. We've, uh, uh, we're learning from Quebec. I've had a chance to talk at two, on two occasions with the minister from Quebec about what they're dealing with, what's happening, but not only from them. This is a, a challenge that's being uh, grappled with across uh, North America, across the world, in fact. New York, Louisiana, many jurisdictions are coming up with interesting ways about getting at this problem. So we've been doing jurisdictional scans, learning from them, uh, and that's what we hope to bring forward uh, this fall. Uh, there's also uh, the issue of an individual coming in and renting, let's say, a one-bedroom uh, unit, and, but not just one, but it, renting five of them, and then thinking that each suite that they've rented can you know, generate more dollars. So I was hearing one example where somebody rents an apartment for $3,000, but they can make 4500 a month just by putting it up on Airbnb, and then they turn it into a business where they get 10 units, paying the same amount of money, but each one gives them a profit of about $1,500 a month. Um, is there any way, in, in regards to your legislation, would cities be able to go after those individuals as well who are turning it into businesses where they have rented out 10, 15, 20 of these units and have essentially turned this into a, a sort of a broader business? Yeah, well, you know, uh, that's interesting. Uh, I've uh, had an opportunity to talk to uh, one local government that actually highlighted this specific problem. Uh, and in fact, when they went to talk to the, uh, the person that had the property, uh, they were told they have no jurisdiction and the person wouldn't cooperate. And so that's how uh, blatant uh, some of the folks that are in this space and that are operating in this space are. Uh, they believe the rules shouldn't apply to them. Uh, certainly uh, some of the initiatives that we're taking on this fall will capture that, mm-hmm. but there are some nuances that I'm sure will be challenges for us to grapple with we'll learn along the way and adjust if we need to. Uh, Final question to you. Do you think there is a need for Airbnb and similar online companies uh, to do what they do? Or can this city in this province live without Airbnb in your mind? Well, I think think these uh, operators, uh, these short-term rental operations are are here to stay. Uh, I don't see uh, in the future them be completely eliminated. Uh, many communities uh, now have become dependent on them. Uh, some smaller ones, in fact, uh, have real pressures uh, when they have workforces coming in and, and, and they need that type of short-term availability of the housing. The question, I think, more so is how do we make sure that uh, it, the, the systems that are, are there are actually supporting us as a community, supporting us as our local economy, and not hindering our opportunities and our growth? That, I believe, is where we need to go, and that will be reflected in how we move forward uh, this fall. Minister, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jess. Stay safe.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.